You're now listening to episode 42 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here today with family office expert Richard C. Wilson to discuss estate planning, raising capital from family offices, accounting and tax challenges of high net worth families, and more. Richard C. Wilson helps $100 million plus net worth families create and manage their single family office. He's also author of the number one best-selling book in the family office industry, The Single Family Office, Creating, Operating, and Managing Investments of a Single Family Office, and another book, Capital Raising, The Five-Step System for Raising Capital from Private Investors. With 2018 officially behind you, it's never been a better time to start tax planning for 2019 and the years ahead. Our Tax Strategy Foundation Engagement is a three-call series that walks you through the tax strategies you'll need to reduce your tax bills. At the end of the engagement, we'll give you a tax strategy blueprint that summarizes each strategy and the actions you'll need to take to implement them. And if you need further assistance throughout the year, our team is available to help you every step of the way. There's no need to pay more taxes than necessary. Head on over to therealestatecpa.com and fill out the form on our Become a Client page to get started today. Uh, we're joined here with Richard C. Wilson. Richard, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Would you mind giving our listeners a little bit of information on your background, how you got started in the family office space? Sure. Uh, essentially, I worked in risk management and then started working for a capital placement firm. So we are basically helping hedge funds and investment managers connect with potential investors. And while doing that, we found out that the institutional investors were too big. The wealth management firms that serve the average person don't have accredited investors. So we had to go after high-end wealth management firms. And while doing that, I started meeting with, almost on accident, a few that were calling themselves family offices. Not very many. but would be like one out of 300 would say they had a family office and not a wealth management firm. And so I thought to myself, what does that mean? And when I would ask them on the phone or when I met with them, they'd say, oh, well, we only serve people worth over $10 million. And I said, oh, perfect. Now I won't waste time with the wealth managers or the institutional groups. I'll only work with them. The problem was very hard to understand the space, very hard to find them. And that led to me just sharing everything I was learning in slow motion by meeting with them online. And then I got on the front page of the Boston Globe and spoke a couple hundred times in 14 countries. We bought familyoffices.com. And it all just kind of took off from there. And we started getting hired by non-family offices for our expertise. And then we got hired by family offices to help run their family offices and set them up, et cetera. For our listeners out there who may not, you know, understand what a family office is, could you give them a quick overview of what a family office is and who would use a family office? Sure. There are two types of family offices. Uh, So it's important to say that up front because the definition is slightly different. One is a single family office, which simply means it's set up for one single family or individual. And it means that you've got a dedicated team that's focused on optimizing your investments your insurance, your charitable giving, your taxes, estate planning, everything is planned holistically and is well-connected, communicated, and is done with the reality of where your family wants to go. And the infrastructure is built just for your family. For a multifamily office, you need to think about a wealth management firm. So most people are familiar with that. You just think that it's a very customized, holistic, hopefully very holistic 
wealth solution, like more full balance sheet solution for ultra wealthy families. And because these groups might work with people at 10 million, 30 million, 50 million net worth minimums, they get into multi-generational issues more often, trust and estate planning, taxation, foundations, et cetera. And so single and multifamily offices are the two, two types. It's good to know. With all the families that you had the opportunity to work with, whether it be in the single family office space or you know, in the multifamily office space, how many of these families actually invest in real estate? Uh, almost all of them do. We did a benchmark survey of 180 of them that are within the family office club recently. And we found that 75% of them invest in commercial real estate. And of those, it makes up 25% of their portfolio. Uh, we find that that's pretty much true for families that are not in commercial real estate in terms of where they created their wealth, but they're just using it as an investment area. If a family created their wealth in real estate, then many times they put 60, 70, 80% of their wealth back into that. And they might hold on to some cash or maybe put some in a trust in, in a different vehicle. But usually the families that created their wealth there obviously allocate a lot more than the operating business families. What are the biggest tax and estate planning challenges that the family office clients that are investing in real estate face? Uh, well, right now they face the challenge of uh, everyone talks about opportunity zones, but they don't know how to allocate to them. There's all these people raising capital for funds that have no inventory to allocate to. And like that kind of confuses them and they don't want to miss the boat on that. But they also don't want to stick their head out first on it. So that's one issue that's kind of real time. Uh, a more evergreen issue is just having a flexible trust and estate plan set up so that if family members become drug addicts, that maybe they don't get access to $50 million or if People don't follow the family governance rules that the trust structures are flexible enough to take into account like variations of human behavior along the way or changes that are unpredictable. I think that's always something that family members are concerned about getting locked into something that might not make sense later. And then just on a more high level, selecting the right estate planning solution firm, a lot of families just appreciate working with someone who only works with ultra wealthy or only works with family offices or uh, has dozens and dozens of clients that are at their level of net worth because otherwise they feel like they're that service provider's learning curve. Or if they don't know that, they're just going to get bad service and they don't know what they don't know. So they could be getting a lot better service with somebody kind of focused on that space. Yeah, interesting. So you, you mentioned the opportunity fund stuff. Are you seeing a lot of interest or money moving out of equities into opportunity funds? Or what, what are you kind of seeing on the family office level? Right now, we see a lot of demand and then a few entrepreneurial groups, you know, raising capital for things and people trying to organize how they can get some of their assets that happen to be in opportunity zones now marketed more as such. So I see a lot of uh, that going on. Uh, but it's mostly just pent up demand right now. And we run about 20 investor summits and investor relations workshops each year. And the last two or three events that we hosted uh, came up several times. Uh, I was just in uh, Mexico speaking at a family business event and it came up and I was just in Denver on Saturday speaking at a real estate event and it came up. So it's coming up a lot because whenever there's a new area, it's always inefficient at the beginning and those who you know make it more efficient and less hard to navigate get rewarded for that. That's interesting. I, I would expect demand to kind of spike at some point next year because into 2019 is kind of that investment time frame to maximize those tax benefits. Yeah, for sure. Out of the estate planning, um, is there any specific estate planning strategies these families use? Is it like a go-to strategy that they happen to gravitate towards? Or is it so complex that everybody needs their own specific like strategy? 
it's pretty complex, but I think the one thing that uh, I always like to suggest to families is to consider what the goals and mission is of the family and what type of next generation individuals they want to groom. And also how important is it to have the money be around three, four or five generations from now? So one strategy is to look at how the money is gifted to the next generations and to have some portions in part for education, advanced education, and uh, maybe their first house or down payment on a house or an emergency fund in case of an extreme illness. But in addition to that, maybe restrict some of the inheritance and have it restricted to a application to like the family bank, essentially, where it has to be approved by the elders as a solid business plan to buy a business or start a business. And only if it's approved by the elders and overseen by it, then that family member gets more money. And that way, the money is given to basic kind of needs for the family members. But otherwise, it's reserved for business opportunities that pass the screens of the family. And the family could say, you're only allowed to buy companies that are over $5 million in revenue. Or you're only allowed to buy profitable companies or you're only, you know, they can make up their own rules to inject their values into what they think works in business and what skills the family has so that they could guide the next generation. And the next generation can do whatever they want with their careers in theory. But if you want the family money, the family money goes into the thing where the family is good at, not for your random idea to buy, you know, a little Caesars next door to where you're going to school or something. That actually brings up an interesting question because I know we have a lot of syndicators, a lot of funds out there who listen to this podcast, and they mm-hmm. often, you know, looking to raise capital potentially from family offices. Right. What would you say that you know? I know each family office may be different, but is there any specific things you know that family offices look for before you know? How do they vet necessarily? How do they vet a sponsor before they say invest their money with that person or that group? Yeah, for sure. So I've got like a short answer, and I've got a. Uh, a longer answer. So the short answer is they want people that are really high conviction, focus on the strategy. They're drowning in stuff that looks like normal. Everybody's a multifamily sponsor, it seems, with a 15 to 20% IRR and an 8% hurdle with a you know 30% take on fees. And after 12, they get 40 or 50. You know, like everybody looks the same. Conference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's like thousands of these people out there doing the yeah. same thing in their eyes. Any informed investor is just drowning in normal. So they want to see abnormal. They want to see a unique structure or unique fees or more alignment or a co-GP or be your seed investor or be your JV partner or do something smarter than just being an LP soldier going into the normal thing. So I think they want things that are unique in a way that matters to them, which means knowing your competition well and knowing your investor set well that you're going to. And they want really high integrity, long-term minded people. If you're new to something or if you're not really dedicated to it or you're not 100% professional, if you're not patient, if you're not quality to be around in their experience um, and adding value first, and they move on very quickly and you just get lost in their inbox and they won't reply to anything. And I think you have to know your one-liner of exactly how you are unique and get it down to one sentence, which doesn't cost anything. But nobody I talk to can do that. They always ramble on for three to five sentences. And get it down to one crisp sentence you can use in a voicemail, an email, a coffee meeting, et cetera, is really important because if you don't know your relevance amongst your competition and then the investor's eyes that you're trying to approach, then they're never going to know it. Like do the homework for them instead of just writing an essay long email, hoping that you're going to sell them via email. That never, ever happens. You really should write one sentence that sells them on picking up the phone or opening your one pager. And that's the job of the email. And everybody seems to mess that up. Um, We've got 5,000 people a year that come to our events and almost no one has that crystal clear, like killer one-liner. A lot of people say, Oh, well, cash flowing commercial real estate 
that's well underwritten or something that like everyone else could say. And the trick is to look at your DNA and describe it in a way that's different, but meaningful and genuine and tangible because of your number of years of experience or your laser focus on only self-storage only in Southern California or something that makes you stand out from the herd. So that scarily enough is the short answer. The long answer is an 87 page book that's free on capitalraising.com. We have done 30 full day workshops where I just talk for seven hours about what not to do in raising capital, what to do, and everything is free in that book. You don't have to come to a workshop, you can just get the book and it's five-step system. And if you want to dig deeper, obviously, we have more resources, but hundreds of thousands of people just read our books or watch the videos and move on with their life, hopefully gaining benefit from that. And that's, that's the longer answer, I guess. So how does a family office assist a family, an ultra high net worth family in making those types of investment decisions, like picking those sponsors? Like would those, would the family office be kind of vetting those sponsors? And you mentioned the one liner, like is is the sponsor giving that to the family office or giving that to the actual family? Yeah, really good question. And um, there's a couple different answers to that. So multifamily offices usually are good at managing diversified investments like stocks, bonds, fund managers. When it comes to independent sponsors and the trend of direct investing, multifamily offices are usually horrible at that. And they'll say no to everything. Or, oh, well, do your own due diligence. We do stuff that's on our platform and we can tie with a bow and click and allocate to and as well due diligence. And there's reasons why they do that so that they don't you know, lose their clients' funds and go into things that they feel like are safer and they can scale across 200 clients they have. They don't want to spend time due diligence in your self-storage deal around the corner because they can't syndicate that to their 100 other clients. So it doesn't make sense. So what happens then is that the principal is usually doing some of those direct investments if they want to do it, if they have a multifamily office. Only 5 or 10% are actually helpful as a multifamily office. As a single family office, if it's been formalized and around for more than a year or two, and it has a formal team, and the team is not the principal or the son, then it's usually handled by the chief investment officer, portfolio manager, or analyst within the single family office. So that's very different than it is the professional staff and not the principal that is going to be helping screen through deals. Although the final, final decision, especially the first gen family, is usually coming down to the guy who made the money still. That's the whole fun of doing direct investing, but he uses the team so he doesn't have to sift through a thousand teasers take the 30 meetings and then do the due diligence and just he just wants to look at the three that his team says best in class and see if he agrees with two out of the three perhaps or some trend that it's playing off of. And so all that said, it's always good to be direct to the principal if you can be, you know, at the end of the day, they're the ones that make things happen. So if you have that access, it's, it's a good thing for making it happen. So it sounds like if you're going to approach a family office with an investment, you have to have your ducks in a row. You have to have a track record. You have to have something that sticks out. It's a totally different ballgame than raising money the standard way most syndicators would. You know, friends or family are going out and doing the qualities and stuff. It's a, it's a lot more of an extensive process. These families, they're a lot more selective in what they, what they even look at, let alone invest in. Right. I mean, they don't want to deal with someone who's just messing around on their first experimental project. It doesn't mean that someone has to be 100 million AUM. It could just be you've done a bunch of 20 unit, 40 unit deals, and now you want to move up to 100 plus unit. Instead of raising 25, 50K at a time, you want to raise 250, 500,000 at a time or more. You might be able to find an entrepreneurial local family office that gets to know you over time and maybe participates really small in a deal or two, sees how you treat them, do your reporting. And they might help you uh, not only as an LP, but they might say, well, we can open up our network. Or they might say, well, we're going to auto-allocate 
we'll put up 10% with your 10% and be co-GP with you. But we want part of your game because we're going to help get you introduced to this family office world and get things moving for you and professionalize your back office. And, you know, they might like shark tank you, for lack of a better word, just to like joint venture with you and help you go to the next level or test you out for a few years to get to know you. So I don't want people to think like, oh, well, you know, I'm not big, so I can't go to family offices. It's just you have to be long term committed and have something of genuine, unique value. So switching gears a little bit, this is an accounting and tax podcast. Or what do the accounting operations look like for an ultra high net worth family or for family offices? Um, surprisingly, a lot of times when people come to me, they still have their old accountant managing things and they're a little bit overwhelmed. They don't have proper like full balance sheets being created and full financial reporting that's transparent and up to speed. So a lot of families spend a lot of money on consolidated reporting. I had one tell me that if he could spend $5 million and have a amazing out-of-the-box solution that actually worked, they would do it because they've spent so much money internally trying to customize things. That was four years ago. Nowadays, there's better solutions out there. But there is the bookkeeping. There is the accounting taxation part of the accounting. There is the aggregated reporting from all the investments. So you can just see how the performance of the portfolio is going, which sometimes is related to accounting and reporting division. And then there's kind of the more hardcore accounting tax advisory type service. And so sometimes families have little pieces of that put together, but they have no reporting yet. And what I try to get them to do is consolidate that to one or two providers that are family office quality and go to a top accounting firm that's used to serving families with 100 LLCs all the time. So they're not like blown away by it or stressed out by it. And like, so it makes me look good introducing them to people that can just handle it. and They're very capable and typically have, you know, 50 or 100 people on staff to handle that. But at the same time, I do think that the family office industry is just getting started. And it doesn't have to be a large firm. It just needs to be a firm that is focused on their types of headaches. Like the recent book that I came out with is called, well, I'm coming out with it right now. I got the draft version here in hand. It's called Centimillionaire Migraines. And it's a centimillionaire, someone worth over $100 million. And the whole book is digging into the top six headaches of $100 million net worth families. And the point of bringing that up is that at the end of the day, families want unique value that's genuinely valuable for their exact situation. And they don't care about working with a big conglomerate. Like they don't need to go to Goldman Sachs because they're Goldman. On some level, they don't care about that. They want to go to a specialist provider that has a curated solution for them. So it could be a, a four-person company or it could be a 15-person company if it's catering to a niche need they have in conservation easements or in something that tax-wise is relevant to them. It's about that curated value, not the size of the. You, you just mentioned conservation easements. We interviewed a guy named Jim Sullivan on episode 21 of the Real Estate CPA podcast. So if you I don't want to dive into it right now because we could be here for another hour. So go check right. that podcast out if you want to learn about land conservation easements. But this is a good kind of transition to my next question, which is mm-hmm. obviously you've, you've worked with a lot of these big families. You've also worked with a lot of family offices. What have you kind of seen as that go-to tax strategy advice or maybe just the best tax advice that you've seen? Is there anything that kind of stands out? Mm-hmm. Um. One thing that some families don't have in place is just making sure that they have considered having an LLC for their actually fam- their family office vehicle for single the single family office activities. A lot of times they have a wealth advisory firm and they have LLCs for their holdings, but not a centralized LLC for their family office. And that sometimes just gets missed. But by having that, you can more legitimately write off travel expenses for family meetings 
for the family office and things that you're looking at internally to invest in between family members that otherwise IRS might take a more skeptical eye to those expenses. So that's important. Um, I'm surprisingly, you know, conservation easements, cost segregation, private life insurance type wrappers to put investments inside of. Surprisingly, these types of things are not commonly applied by many family offices. What I find is that they're very, very smart in one area, usually never taxation. They hopefully get a great taxation advisor plugged in, but it's a lot of work just to get the basic things in place over the first you know, nine months, year and a half, two years, trust and estate planning, like the big rocks in there. And I found that some of these families take a long time, three to five years to get to or never get to using cost segregation or tax energy credits. And you'd think it would just be like, so obvious they should. But sometimes just the major things uh, take so much planning and time, they get a bit uh, exhausted, you know, time-wise by it or energy-wise. And they, they want to focus on where they create their wealth, typically on manufacturing or in biotech. And so it's a little bit of a battle sometimes to get the attention of a client, even if they have an attorney on a $10,000 a month retainer, they might not give that attorney any time for a couple of months because they're busy doing a deal or something. So it can be a challenge because uh, these are the busiest people on planet Earth um, if they don't have a great team around them. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, what would you say is the best advice you would have for families who, who invest in real estate? Hmm. I think it is to focus. Uh, the mistake that I think almost every family makes when they become liquid is saying, we're open to anything or we're looking at all types of opportunities like a college kid coming out saying, oh yeah, well, I'll take any job. But then he gets an accounting job and he hates it. And then he gets like another type of job. Oh yeah, well, I guess I don't want to be you know, doing a project management or something. So families sometimes learn the hard way what they don't want to do. And they often start out way too broad. And I just think that the focus matters almost more than what the focus is sometimes. And they take this wealth management mindset of diversify like crazy and they take it to their direct investing. And they say, okay, well, I'm going to invest in self-storage. And then I heard about this mobile home park investment. I'm going to do this office park that we operate in. And then these multifamily sponsors seem to be doing a good job. And they spread it all around where, in my experience, if you focus both on operating businesses and on the real estate side, if, you, if all you did was self-storage investing and mobile home parks, after seeing 50 deals of each, you would learn so much more than if you're looking at office parks and data centers and parking garages and single family homes and fix and flips and private lending. I mean, there's like literally 20, 40 different variations of areas that you could focus on. But the families that I know have done the best, they only do like bridge lending, hard asset lending with great collateral and a healthy LTV. And they're getting 12 to 17% returns with great collateral underneath it. Or like they only invest with independent sponsors on multifamily. And because of that, they know it backwards and forwards. And they come up with creative structures and they can really pick out that anomaly deal and really know when bad assumptions are being made in the underwriting. But you wouldn't know that if you were like looking at all types of deals and there's just way too many learning curves to move up. So regardless if you're a billion dollar family or a $50 million family, I just think on direct investing, you need to focus, even though everybody's portfolio should be diversified in different ways based on their risk needs income needs, uh, et cetera. Um, I just think a lot of people start out way too diversified. That's great advice. You know, I think a lot of investors, you know, they hear all these different strategies and decide to test this, test that, test this. Right. And, you know, 
I think what you said there in diving deep mm-hmm. into one area, you're really going to get to know these expertise and something definitely resonates with me. For sure. Yeah, real, real quick, you know, we, we see a lot of that too. We, we represent a lot of these accredited investors that'll take LP stakes and a bunch of the syndicates and right. it's pretty amazing how quickly people will pull the trigger. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? for sure. Like, okay, I'm in, you know, and like, right, uh, right. is hear about it and they're in. We'll part with, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and it's like, whoa. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. That is, that is the case sometimes. And then, um, you know, I just think that it, for everybody on either side of the table, a family office or an independent sponsor, things go better when you focus. I see independent sponsors that are struggling and they're not focused enough. They're not focused geographically or not focused on one strategy. There was someone at a real estate event I just spoke at and they said, oh, well, we're buying hotels. And I said, okay, well, what type of hotels? They're like, oh, well, we look at every type. I'm like, okay, well, it's not very compelling. So why don't you just do like hotels on university campuses or hotels within a block of a hospital or hotels, I don't know, at airports, only airport hotels. And for the rest of your life, only do that. And you know, the 412 that exist, you know, the first name of the people that own them. It's a credible story. Like I could imagine you being an expert at that, but no one's an expert at hotels, you know, overall. And they're a boutique small firm. It's like, no one believes that for a second. So you lose all credibility when you do that. If you don't layer on top of geographical laser focus or some oh, we close it and then here's our, our 12 steps to monetize that and that's the unique part. So I feel like a lot of independent sponsors have work to do there, but family offices do as well. It's amazing advice, frankly. I think a lot of people should, should, should listen to it. <laughs> but, <laughs> For sure. Uh, so we're, we're wrapping up here. If, if our listeners want to get in touch with you or your company, how mm-hmm. is the best way to do so? Sure. If you are raising capital, we've got that free book on capitalraising.com. So that's the best way for people on that side. Uh, if you are a family office um, or if you just want to check out what our investor platform and investor community is all about, just go to familyoffices.com and we've got our phone number, email address, another free book on family offices there that's about 250 pages long. And uh, we're just all about giving away as much as possible. That's why we love doing podcasts like this because uh, we find that sometimes we'll help someone with just one little nugget idea and we'll hear from them five years later. They'll be like, oh, I changed my whole direction because that one sentence. And then it's just easy to uh, do business with people after you've gotten to know them in such a fashion, which I'm sure you guys are finding as well with your podcast. It's like the more you give away, then the more good things happen. Absolutely. So you know, it was a pleasure uh, having you on today. I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Sure. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.